Welcome to this Voices of Experience today. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Eric Crema and Eric Ryder, who's working the boards today, we are very glad to be here on what's turning out to be kind of a smoky afternoon, yeah, unfortunately. Smoky afternoon. Uh, we got spoiled yesterday, if you remember. It was like the most absolutely perfect day yes. in terms of the weather. It was unbelievable. Actually, this whole October has been amazing. But, uh, yeah, the smoke is back in town. Smoke on the water. Right. Water everywhere. We don't usually do this, but I have some breaking news. Some breaking news. Yeah. So we're not into the business of doing that. However... I just got a live update, courtesy of the New York Times. Alex Jones ordered to pay Sandy Hook victims' families nearly $1 billion. Oh. Unbelievable. I wonder if wow. that's going to hurt his pocketbook at all. Well, that's, you know what? Uh, what do they say? Uh, words, uh, uh, actions have consequences at times, right? Yeah, yeah. and sometimes I think, uh, don't want to get a big debate going sure. here because we could do it, but no, I... I not from what you said, but freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also freedom of responsibility and not to hurt people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can say what you want to say, but there is accountability to that. Maybe we'll have some discussion on that in the future. Yes. Sometimes I really get, I guess, tired of people just saying, hey, you can say like, you know, Hillary Clinton has a sex shop down in this pizzeria and the guy goes and shoots it up. A lot of people could have died there. And so what yes. I'm submitting is that um, it's uh, there, but I'm, I am just so pleased to hear that a jury did the right thing. And um, now we'll see what goes from here. Who knows? Yeah, and whether or not the payout ever happens, the point has been made here that, uh, just as you said, words, words can lead to actions that are unforgivable, you know, right. things that happen. Right. And you have to be very careful, particularly when you're on a, a national or international spotlight, right? right? Absolutely. Or Absolutely. platform. Yes, Interesting. So anyhow, kicking out uh, the show with some good news, at least I think it is, um, for Alex Jones. So let's get on to the subjects we have today because we have a number of them and uh, very varied today. Uh, First up will be Neil Peterson, and he's the uh, transportation expert. That's what he did in his personal life for many years. And he's the current director of the Edge Foundation, a nonprofit organization that helps children and adults with attention deficit hypertension disorder. Mm. However, that is not what we're going to be talking about today. That's just his background. Neil is a very curious individual, and uh, I've known him for many years, and uh, he has a blog called Neil's Meandering Musings. And what he does is just really goes into subjects that, you may not think of, or if you do, he just always seems to have a different view or something you may not have thought of. And I'm going to give you, after the interview, his information, how you can access that blog. Today, we're going to be talking about a trip that he decided to just take to the Midwest, get in a van and drive around for three weeks. Why? Well, he grew up on the East Coast. He came to the West Coast and he li- worked in Seattle for many years, and he still lives here. And uh, so he's always spent his time between the East Coast and the West Coast. And he has stereotypes about the Midwest. He's never spent any time there. So he wanted to go find out for himself, and which, which he does many times. He walks into cafes. He just meets with people he mm-hmm. you never would know. And he comes home. He says, this is what I was thinking before I left. 
and this is what I'm thinking now. So that's what uh, the result of that trip and a conversation I had with them will be coming up very soon. That's, that's great. I look forward to it. That's interesting. Bob Little. Bob Remember Little. the name Bob Little? We used to work with him. Right. Well, he's a broadcaster or was a broadcaster for 60 years, and 40 of those years were spent at Kixie from 1961 to 2001. So again, if you've been listening to Kixie for a long time, you remember that name. I had an interview with him in 1998, and I'm going to play that interview later today. Oh, wow. That's amazing. It's going to bring back so many memories. When I think of Bob Little, I always see him in his his um, Letterman's looking jacket that said Kixie on it. Okay. Looked just like something out of the 50s or 60s. It was Letterman's jacket. He would wear that all the time around the station. I don't remember that, yeah. but uh, you worked here at the oh, time. Yeah. So yeah. you re- oh, that's fantastic. He's uh, a great man. Yes, he, he really was. And that baritone voice that he had. Mm-hmm. Just a delightful person. Voices in history today. Two former presidents have been winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. Between now and when we talk about voices in history, try to guess who those two presidents are. And we'll do that. You guys both do that. And why don't you tell me who you think they are before we do voices in history, and we'll see how close you are. I'll see. Yeah, i gotta, I got to noodle that one a little bit. Eric, you uh, talked to a Mary Steele, and she's the executive director of the Compass Housing Alliance. What was that about? Yeah, so it was a great interview, about 10 minutes. We had a chance to uh, sit down here in studio and talk about um, what exactly the organization does and how it helps homeless here in this region, uh, particularly Seattle, and um, the good work that they're doing. They have a sort of a different tact at the way they look at some of the solutions, and uh, she did a great job uh, just explaining, again, what the organization's about, why she personally does what she does. I always like to hear that. You know, what 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 made you to want to get into this position of executive director uh, in an organization like this? So uh, I think it's a fascinating interview. I hope you like it. It's coming up around uh, halftime, I would say. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, looking forward to that. And I agree with you. I'm so curious about why people ended up in the careers they're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one hit wonder for today. This song changed the way motorcyclists were viewed in the United States of America. There was a much different view of how motorcyclists were developing and and whatever, riding around their motorcycles and what people thought about that. And this song changed that. Interesting. Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster will be here, and uh, they're going to talk about the uh, today. Now, they have a podcast called Peculiar Podcast, and today they're going to be talking about naming rights to stadiums. Remember like the old kingdom? Mm-hmm. Well, now what would it be? Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, That's true. Pepsi Stadium or something like that. So they take a different view of that, which they always seem to do. So we'll have that up in just a moment or so. I just wanted to uh, let you know what Voices of Experience is all about. If you are a first-time listener, we talk with people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. And today, in that spirit, we're going to be talking about pitfalls of partnerships when you go into business for yourself. What I try to do is target what would be my target audience. That would be people who are thinking about going into business. So if they're doing this and considering this, this is just something I want you to take a close look at. So uh, let's get to it. Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster coming up next. 
one of my favorite authors, David McCullough, uh, passed away too, 89 years old, wrote books on John Adams, Truman, which I have on my bookshelf right now. I'm looking at it. It's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, won Pulitzer Prizes for both of those books and a lot of others. And he had a wonderful voice. So you heard him on a lot of documentaries through mm. the years as well. The real effect of October 29th took a little longer to sink in. By noon, all the gains of the previous year had been obliterated. By 4 p.m., nearly $10 billion of market value was gone. Very familiar voice. Yeah. Uh, nobody should be that good. You can't be a great writer, <laughs> and also you get to have a great voice. Now, you got to yeah, choose. Yeah, that's kind of... That's kind of hogging up all the gifts. You yeah. should you really only have be bestowed with maybe one really great gift. Or <laughs> or or a handful of mediocre ones. Yeah. You shouldn't like yeah. No, no, it should be fair. It when you be when fair. you used the uh, when you just said that the thing about hogging up, it reminds me that when we my wife and I used to watch Seahawks games and if they were losing, Patty would throw her up her hands and say, well, no wonder the other team is hogging the ball. <laughs> that's exactly how you lose. Yeah, that's They're... how you lose. <laughs> speaking that's of that, funny. speaking of uh, sports, uh, my summer love has been to see uh, the, the uh, Seattle Mariners' unlikely and remarkably improved fortunes this summer. Now, it could still all end in ho- hopeless misery, but as of <laughs> that's what as you of say now, every that's what you say every year. Well, I, that's that. because that happens every year. I mean, it's not with yeah. I, there's there's a foundation to my to my belief there, but it looks pretty good. They're playing well. It's it's fun, and uh, some people don't give a hoot about such things, but I've I've that always loved that baseball, and uh, so it's cool. But I was mean. thinking that they're playing now at a place called T-Mobile Park, which was, which began as Safeco Field. Oh, yeah. But remember the days when stadiums just were what they were? There's Yankee Stadium. There was the Kingdome. I would, they right. didn't have a, any corporate name to it. Now everything's Candle, got a corporate Candlestick name. Candlestick Park. I remember watching the San Francisco yeah. it wasn't, uh, Giants or whoever the hell Yeah, there was Giants. And it wasn't because... It was uh, sponsored by a candlestick company. Right, right. Yeah, just, that was the name. Yeah, of Wrigley it. Field. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that that, that was Wrigley Gum, but yeah. Oh, was it? Okay, I didn't know that. Well, why the didn't o- they call it? Wait, wait. Why didn't they call it Wrigley Gum Field then? Well, um, <laughs> they did have an opportunity to name second base Double Mint, you know, but they didn't do that. <laughs> but I'm just, I was just wondering. Uh, you know, we got these are real names. Some of them are not all American names. Some are for soccer fields. But at at the moment, we have a place called Sleep Train Arena, which uh, is asking a lot of fans to stay awake. Minute mm-hmm. Maid Park. What a Burger Field. That's an Astros really? AAA affiliate. Yeah, What a Burger Field. There's Cheaper Insurance Direct Stadium. Oh, my God. And in England, I believe it's there's a Tony Macaroni Arena. And then in Glendale, Arizona, where the Super Bowl is going to be played this year again, they uh, play that at University of Phoenix Stadium. And as you know, University of Phoenix isn't even really an no. actual physical campus. It's an, it's an online school. Yeah. I used to tell people that they say, well, where did you and your wife meet? And I said, well, uh, I played football at the University of Phoenix 
for, for seven years, and my wife was a cheerleader, and that's how we met. <laughs> and do some people get it, and others go, oh, that's so great. What a yeah. great story. Oh, no, yeah, the, the latter is usually the case. Yeah, oh, that's so cute. I love that story. That's great. So great. And the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky is the KFC Yum Center. KFC I actually like Yum. that one. You like that one? I would go to that one, KFC Yum Center. But I'm just wondering, yeah. are there any limits? Should there be limits to stadium naming rights? What what if well, what if it, what if the people from XLAX came forward and said, We will pay you your highest fee to have naming rights for your stadium? X Lax right. Field. Or or Gas X Park. Yeah. Be great. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> So I think we <laughs> exit at the right time there. Yeah, but anyhow, it's going down a bad get into it. That's pretty amazing that, uh, yeah, the naming rights of stadiums and that was didn't exist like 20, 25 years ago. Now it's everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, so uh, I love Pat Cashman's though. You just if you listen really closely, it's the little things that get me. Like when he says his wife was watching football with him. Well, they're hogging the ball. The other team's hogging the ball. They're They're horrible people. <laughs> Yes. Why do they do that? It's not fair. I used to watch football with a buddy of mine, and he'd always say, about about third quarter, I'm 99% sure if we score more points, we're going to win this game. So <laughs> what you're saying to me, if we score more more points than the opposition, we win? We win this game. Oh. Simple. A, oh, wow. That's funny stuff. So, yeah. though They're um, quite good, and so I want to let you know, again, it's the um, Peculiar Podcast. And uh, you can go listen to that anytime. Just uh, Google it, and you will find it, these treasures, and many more. So I, I really in, enjoy what they have to offer and what they do. And they've been doing it for a while, like 11, 12 years together. And you can see the team of Lisa and Pat. I've said that before, but you can see they've been doing this a while. So anyhow, we'll be back in just a moment with um, Neil Peterson and his adventures across the Midwest. I first met Neil Peterson when he was the director of Metro Transit and Water Quality, which is now known as King County Metro. I worked there as well. Now, Neil remained in the transportation industry with stints in Los Angeles and Oakland. He was the founder of Flexcar, which became Zipcar. He is now the CEO of the Edge Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. Now, Neil has a blog as well, which he writes about trips he has made around the globe. I have had him on my show on several occasions. We talked about Iceland. He's also been to Cuba, El Camino de Santiago, Death Valley, and a number of other trips. Now, my observation is that much of the time, Neil doesn't find the trips. The trips find him. And what drives his trips are curiosity. Case in point. He took a three-week trip driving through the Midwest in August. Now, he grew up on the East Coast and spent most of his career on the West Coast. Now, sandwiched in between were trips to the Midwest, but generally they were in and out of airports. Now, I want to explore some of our stereotypes that I had and he had about the Midwest prior to the trip, and you'll hear that in my introduction. I'd like to just start out with some of the biases that I read in your blog before you took the trip and some of mine. Some of my biases are that everybody in the Midwest is a Trumpster. 
They have a declining population. As soon as you get your high school diploma, you're out of there. You're going to the cities of Chicago, maybe Milwaukee, wherever that may be. And then, of course, on Sundays, it's a, a place of God-fearing people. That's what they do. They go to church. But then they come out and they're racist. They go home and they're comfortable with that. Meat-eating people, that's all they do is eat meat. And uh, I think, as you said about uh, the weather, when they're not doing some of their other activities, they're dodging tornadoes and thunderstorms. How's that for teeing up uh, stereotypes? And, um, and that's the basis and why I really thought it was great that you took this trip. What did you find? Well, my goodness. <laughs> I love, I love to hear your, uh, the biases that you have as a result of living on the, the West Coast. And then the East Coast would say the same thing, I think. And uh, I had a lot of those myself before I went there. And uh, I think I found that um, there's a lot more to the, the so-called Midwest than, um, than I thought. And, you know, there's a tinge of, of truth to everything you mentioned, but to me, much more important, the people uh, and the value and the quality and the work ethic and the values that they hold, and that'd be number one. Number two would be the importance that this area plays to our economy and particularly in certain, in providing certain commodities to the, for the rest of us and in part to the world. That's crucial. The attitude toward one another. And, you know, I spent a lot of my time in the Midwest in what I would call small towns as opposed to big cities like Des Moines or Milwaukee or Chicago or St. Louis. I'm Almost all of my time was spent in really small towns, and I just gained a fleeting um, appreciation of the value of a small town in America today and what it can offer for, you know, not only the people that live there, but for the rest of us. And so I, I came away really with a, um, a tremendous admiration for the people that live there and what they contribute and a sense of gratitude for what they're doing. We talked about this after your trip a little bit, and I thought it was really fascinating when you mentioned about talking to the people and how we can turn down the volume on the animosity we do have and maybe the stereotypes we have. And you suggested that it's too much identity politics, the people. But you say that if you talk about the issues, we find we have a lot in common. Well, that's right. I mean, if we start talking about things like the kinds of issues that people are concerned about there that affect their day-to-day lives, we have much more in common than, than we think compared to what the national media would say. And my guess is that 80% of those issues are not Republican and Democratic, liberal and conservative issues. A lot of elections in, in, in towns across this country for local offices are not partisan elections. They're they're nonpartisan. You're electing a city council person or a mayor. You're not electing a Democrat or a Republican. You also mentioned that farms there, and again, a stereotype of mine and maybe yours too when you went there, it's like I would think that uh, pretty much the farms in the Midwest are like foster farms. There are 10,000 acres of chickens running around or in these warehouses. They smell and horrible places to live. But you saw something different where the small farm, and you said 250 acres, not tiny, but still, those are not what I was thinking they were becoming. There's still a lot of those farms out there. Very definitely. That was a real surprise to me. I mean, the family farm is still alive and well in the Midwest. Now, 
Obviously, there are some bigger farms, and but nothing like what uh, I'm used to in terms of, uh, for example, in Southern California and the central, the central Valley of California, down in the uh, the Coachella Valley. The farming there is managed and run by huge conglomerates and major corporations. And how about homelessness? You didn't see any homelessness, I understand. Well, again, that was a real shocker for me. I mean, uh, you know, I was there for three weeks, and I never saw one homeless person in three weeks. Now, admittedly, almost all my time was in small towns. I was not in, I didn't go to Chicago. I didn't go to St. Louis. I did spend a couple of days in Milwaukee, but even there, I didn't see any. So that, that was a, that was a real shocker. And I tried to speculate on what, what might be the reasons for that. And Number one, the price of housing is much, much, much cheaper in the Midwest than it is on the two coasts. And then secondly, there are less people that fall into the category of extremely low income in the Midwest than there are on the two coasts. So those 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 are uh, major drivers. Interesting observations. I wanted to uh, now move on to Mackinac Island in uh, upper Michigan, I think I heard something about an island somewhere in the country where they didn't allow cars, but it sounds like this is the island, and it sounds like the gold standard as far as uh, island in this country. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, Mackinac Island, uh, you know, sits just below the Upper Peninsula and just above the main part of the state of Michigan and only reachable by uh, ferry or airplane. Uh, they have a history and a tradition of no, no automobiles. So if you want to take a taxi, you go on a horse-drawn carriage. The thing about Mackinac that's so wonderful is it, it forces you to slow down. It forces you to take a step back. Now, I, I also have to mention they have the best fudge in the world. I mean, we got to start talking specifics here. All right. But if you want fudge, you've got to go to Mackinac Island. All right. So now I want to move on to something else, and that is you found some of your heritage by accident in a place called Stoughton, Wisconsin. Yeah, I just sort of stumbled upon this. We were going from one spot to another, and I was looking on the map, and I saw this name, and my mom's maiden name was Stoughton. I'm familiar with the Stoughton history in Massachusetts and Connecticut, which is significant. And I had forgotten that we had any Stoughton history in the Midwest. My great-great-grandfather's brother, my great-great-uncle, is uh, Luke Stoughton, who founded Stoughton, Wisconsin. But it was just a, it was a wonderful experience. We stopped at the City Hall, the library, the cultural center, the museum, the Chamber of Commerce, as well as some stores. Just a great thing to behold. One of the stereotypes of the Midwest that would be on the very plus side would be hospitality. And you had an experience there, as I read. And uh, this is something that I would think would happen there, and it did. And that is the Historical Society Museum was shut down or something, but, but they opened it up for you. Well, that's right. And this this is a story that you know was repeated many times on the trip. So we, we go into the uh, Cultural Heritage Center and uh, chatting with the uh, staff that's there and going around and seeing the exhibits. And so I mentioned to them that, you know, I was related to the a descendant of the founder and would really love to see um, all the artifacts and the history and the materials that are gathered about him. But I was disappointed that the historical museum is only open from Saturday from 12 to 3, and, and we were there on a Tuesday. And and the women behind the counter said, well, geez, let me see if I could do something about that. And then she, on her own, 
you know, uh, called the powers that be for the museum, went and got a key and then went over and opened it and stayed there while uh, I spent about an hour, an hour and a half going through the museum. I mean, it just couldn't have been nicer. You're not a big football fan, but you did go to a Green Bay Packers preseason football game. And uh, you had a lot of positive things to say about that. Well, yeah, but first I had to prove I had to make sure that nobody knew I was from Seattle and a Seahawks fan. So I, I, I bought a gold chain and then put on one of these cheese hats to try to convince people that I was local. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the last time I went to a pro football game was about 10 years ago in Seattle. And I said to myself, I would never go to another one. I would surely never take my kids to one because I was so upset by the profanity and the extra drinking. I also went to a Philadelphia Eagles game uh, some years ago, and that was even worse than what I experienced in Seattle. So to go to the Green Bay Packer game was what was quite an experience because I sat next to a father with two kids, maybe uh, you know, 12 and 11. I mean, it was a family affair. I never heard swearing or any kind of profanity. People sure drank their beers, but nobody was obnoxious or or had, had had too much to drink. I mean, it was a, just a lovely family experience. You know, it's something that uh, a stereotype, again, the Midwest versus out here. Now, I know Seattle from going a few games myself, and I agree. I haven't been there in about eight years because of what you described. But still, if you would have said to me, oh, here are three teams. There's the Philadelphia Eagles, Seattle Seahawks, and Green Bay Packers. Which would be the more loud and obnoxious stadium of those three, I probably would have said Green Bay. Yeah. Now, the the the, uh, the bad part of the story was I don't eat meat. And if you want to have something to eat in that stadium, if you don't eat bratwurst, you are in trouble. So this has been fun. Uh, anything else before we go? Well, I, I, I would like to say one thing. You know, everybody calls it the Midwest, and, and that's kind of a misnomer. And I sort of learned that on this trip. So from now on, I'm calling it America's heartland. My thanks to Neil Peterson for sharing his thoughts with us. You know, there's something that I'm going to take out of my language, and that is flyover states. That is pretty insulting when you look at a group of states, when you kind of come to the assumption that's all they are there for. And I can see how that would not be something that would resonate well, especially people coming from the West or the East Coast. So I'm going to drop that from my dialogue in the future. If you want to visit Neil Peterson's blog about this and the many other trips that he has taken, all you need to do is input neilpetersontrips.com. If you want to find out more about the Edge Foundation, a nonprofit focused on individual, in-school, and community groups, all you need to do is Google Edge Foundation. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices 
Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and uh, again, Eric Crema and Eric Ryder are with me today in the studio. And uh, we have now entered the Voices in History phase of the show. Dum, 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 dum. And there we go. We need an upgrade in our music. <laughs> it's <laughs> but it's sm- okay. It's a small budget. Right, exactly. <laughs> One more time, Eric. Dum, 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 dum. Okay. All right. Here it is. The presidents who received, the living presidents okay. who have received the um, Nobel Peace Prize. And one is former President Jimmy Carter. He uh, won it for his decades of efforts to find peaceful solutions in international conflicts to advance democracy and human rights. That was announced on October 11, 2002. President, former President Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize for his extraordinary efforts in strengthening the international division of the world. Now, it wasn't mm. that exactly, but it was close to that. And he got that again in 2009. International relations. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Al Gore was the vice president, and he also won the uh, Peace Prize on October 12, 2007. And uh, that was because of his documentary he did on global warming, which uh, was called Inconvenient Truth. Inconvenient Truth, yeah. I am going to watch that again. I just want to see. I remember that was out in 2003 or four. And um, he had so many projections. Hmm. I think See if it would any be, of it's come true. Yeah, and I have a feeling it has as we look out. <laughs> October. The, uh, look at it. I mean, looking at the uh, you know, smoke from the fires. Smoke-filled I mean, October it sky. It just kind of rolled in again. On October 14, 1947, U.S. Air Force Captain Chuck Yeager becomes the first person to fly faster than the speed of sound. Chuck Yeager was a combat fighter during World War II. He flew 64 missions over Europe. He was shot down over France, but escaped capture with the assistance of the French underground. And one more, and that would be on October 14, 1962. The Cuban Missile Crisis begins bringing the United States and the Soviet Union on the brink of nuclear conflict. Sounds a little familiar. Too familiar, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully we'll avoid it now as we did then. But I just grabbed that out because here we are. Here we are, back um, again. Back again to that. So that's Voices of Experience for uh, this week. My name is Paul Casey again. Welcome to the show. If you just joined us, we've got a great interview coming up with Eric and Mary Steele in just a moment. Well, hello and welcome to today's Spotlight on Success. I'm speaking with Mary Steele, Executive Director of Compass Housing Alliance, in studio with me today. Mary, so happy to have you here. It's good to be here. Appreciate your time. And this interview is something that I've been looking forward to. We're going to talk about Compass Housing Alliance, what it is and what it does for our local community. So I guess that's maybe the first question. Uh, what exactly is Compass Housing Alliance? 
Well, Compass focuses on housing. We have uh, almost 700 apartments in 14 buildings for people who could not uh, afford housing elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, for example, a couple veterans buildings. We have uh, housing for seniors, housing for folks who are disabled. But we focus on uh, people with no income or very low income. We also have uh, a number of uh, emergency housing beds, about 200 and also provide services like showers and laundry and mail and meals and you know everything that someone who is trying to get off the streets might need. Well, I know we're into the voting season now, and this mm-hmm. is really top of mind for a lot yeah, of particularly sure. Seattle voters, uh, homelessness and what's mm-hmm. being done. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Compass and what it actually does beyond provide the actual mm-hmm. housing. Is there some outreach that happens? Well, for sure. Most of the outreach happens in, uh, in Pioneer Square in our, what we call our Compass Day Center. And um, it's open uh, during the week uh, for folks and also on Saturdays for people who need to come in and meet with a case manager or someone um, who can help them to start taking steps to get off the streets. Mm-hmm. Often the way people get connected is they need a shower or they need laundry and they come into our hygiene center and that's available for people, and then they come upstairs and get a meal, and they, they um, you talked about voting. We have, uh, we have thousands of pieces of mail that come into our mail center uh, every day for people who are, are trying to do things like vote. Okay. So they can get their, uh, get their re- the registration, they can get their government benefits. So it's, uh, it's a way for us to connect. I see. Uh, so you, you're doing uh, the work on the streets itself. Uh, you are placing people in homes. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of it, I would imagine, is temporary. So we do have emergency beds. Uh, we, it's not like mats on the floor. People have a cubicle where they can be 24-7, and we have case managers who work with those folks to try and get them into permanent housing. In our apartments, it really is permanent. It's their home. I see. When someone is in one of our apartments, they stay. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. And I imagine it's life-changing for a absolutely, lot of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have people every, you know, I, of course I spend a lot of my time going to our various sites. And every time I, I go, uh, someone tells me just how much Compass has changed their lives. Well, I, I, was, ma- I imagine, too, on a personal level, that's really rewarding for you. Well, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's very good for me to get to hear that we're making a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes, the, makes the job not so much a job, maybe more of a sort of a passion then. Well, it, it's a mission. A mission. Right? Yeah, that's a better word, I think, yeah. for it. Uh, let's talk about uh, homelessness itself. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of opinions about what needs to be done, absolutely. why it's happening, uh, the effects uh, of homelessness beyond just the individual, the communities that they're in, and that sort of thing. So maybe we can talk about um, some of some of that and maybe dispel any myths that you think there might be out there about homelessness. Well, there seem to be, you know, there's, there's uh, people who think that we should just arrest everyone and put them in jail and take mm-hmm. care of it that way. There are people who think that we should um, just allow people to stay on the streets and only move them when we have a permanent place for them to be. I think uh, I'm more of a pragmatist. Uh, I don't think either one of those approaches will work. Um, We don't have enough housing for everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clearly, housing is a big part of the problem, that there just simply isn't enough housing. 
there was a study recently done by a UW professor, uh, Greg Coburn, who did a lot of correlations and looked at, you know, uh, people say homelessness is caused by drug abuse, homelessness is caused by mental illness. He looked at um, a bunch of cities around the U.S. and compared, um, you know, kind of paired them with, uh, they've got the same amount of mental illness there, they've got the same amount of drug abuse, but the thing that made a difference was how affordable is the housing. Mm. And he found that people are on the streets in places where housing is limited and not affordable. Now, at the same time, you know, we need to connect people. You know, we can't just throw people into housing. They need to have connection. They need to have community so that they will stay in housing. And certainly there are those uh, who are homeless that, that also have addiction problems or mental health problems, and, and that needs to be addressed as well, I would imagine. Which is why we talk about that connection piece. So we have housing that is designed for people who uh, are disabled, who have uh, mental mm-hmm. il- illness issues, who might have substance abuse issues. In those buildings, we have a number of um, case managers who work with them and help them to maintain their housing so that they can stay even though they have those issues going on. And we have a very high success rate. About 97% of the people who get into those that housing they stay there. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's the kind of uh, statistic you want to hear, <laughs> for sure, especially as it yeah. relates to this. How is Compass Housing Alliance funded? Well, it's a mixture. Um, we actually, you know, we get rent just like a normal housing provider. Not very much rent, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cover the cost of providing the service. So we do have contracts with the state and with uh, local government that help. And then, of course, we rely on the generosity of our community as well. So there are donations that can happen. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. That, that makes a big difference. Yeah. In a few minutes, let's go ahead and give out some information about that, how people can donate and learn more. Uh, in the three minutes or so that we have left in, in this conversation, are there any new and upcoming projects or campaigns that our audience need to be aware of? Well, we're uh, really excited to be opening a new uh, emergency facility in Auburn. Um, it's the... we. It's the farthest south that we've been, so and we're uh, glad to be providing service in that community. So there is a hotel that's been purchased by King County through their Health Through Housing program. And within the next few months, we'll be opening about 85 new beds uh, in that hotel for folks coming off the streets, primarily from the um, South King County area. Now, on your website, does it talk a lot about these projects that are sort of coming down the line? Well, it does talk about what we're doing and and what we're planning to do. What is that uh, address for your website? Well, www.compasshousingalliance.org. What is the driver for you in your position as executive director? What keeps you just really excited for what you do? Well, let me tell you a story about that. Um, I started, I, I practiced law for 25 years and then uh, ended up working at a place called New Horizons, which works with homeless youth. I had been on the board of that organization for a long time, but that was my first uh, entree into the nonprofit world uh, and uh, ran a day center. And so I was walking through the day center one day and my son was about 12 at the time and he was wearing the same thing to school every day shorts and a hoodie, mm-hmm. a black and white striped hoodie, right? And so I was walking through the day center, and there on one of the couches faced away from me was a kid with the same black and white striped hoodie. 
And for about uh, a nanosecond, it was my son mm. who was on that couch. And I realized, you know, it could be my son. It went in a different way, right? And, and all of a sudden, it was very personal. And realized that, you know, this kid, the only difference between him and my son is that my son has support. He's got a community. He's got people around him who care, who will keep him from being in that position. Um, kids on the streets, you know, uh, 40 to 60 percent of them have been physically or sexually abused in their own homes. Mm. The people we serve at Compass have those same issues. You know, uh, many folks have been on the streets have been since they were in their early uh, 20s. Perhaps what people need to do is just remember that adage, walk a mile in someone else's shoes before you sort of judge them or look down on them or pre-assume uh, pre what what, right. what, what their situation is all absolutely. about. Absolutely, absolutely. Mary, thank you so much for our time. Unfortunately, we're out. I'm going to have you come back, though. Okay. And let's get some updates as some of these projects come to great. fruition. That would be great. CompassHousingAlliance.org. CompassHousingAlliance.org. Thank you so much, Mary, for the work that you do, your team, and I wish you all the best in the coming year. I appreciate your time. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and Adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience, and uh, we're moving into the next phase of the show. But before we do that, that was a promo that I wrote last June or so. And the Mariners were doing pretty bad with Mitch Hanniger coming up and mm -hmm. hopefully hitting that uh, Grand Slam home run against the Dodgers <laughs> in the World Series. Well, things got so bad, I almost pulled that ad because uh, <laughs> things were looking bleak. But, of course, we get into the playoffs now, and it's uh, great, and I'm hopeful M Mitch Hanniger will – come up on tomorrow or something and hit that grand slam to for a payback against Houston at least. There you go. There you go. So anyhow. So we have moved into the next segment, and generally what we talk about here is uh, entrepreneurship, and uh, today we're talking about partnerships. And what my belief is is that I really think that people should take a long, hard look about bringing partners into their business. And I got to set this up because what I mean is when you're starting your business yourself, mm -hmm. there's always that tendency, and I see it, I want to partner with me, okay? And what I suggest is that if you're looking at that, think of this. Traditionally, it's going to be a 50-50 partnership. So you're taking half your income and dividing it right down the middle in the beginning. And that's 50% of your income going forward. 
this is whether you look at what type of business you're going to have and how much money you have. I look at my own experience. When I started, I didn't have a lot of money. So if you have a lot of investors or you have a rich uncle that will write you a half a million dollar check to get going, I'll asterisk that. That's different. But most of us don't. And sometimes, and I'll not talk about that today, that's almost a curse when that happens. Because when you're trying to wade through business, that big check you get, you think's great, but you blow through it pretty quickly. But when you don't, you really have to remain lean and mean. So from the starters, again, I think it's so critical that you look at it that way, that you're giving half your business away before you even open up your doors. And when you have profits of 20, 15%, hopefully, that is a big cut out of that. And I don't think that I would have survived had I brought a partner on. That doesn't mean I don't want advice from a lot of different people. I had a mentor who really took me under his wing. And I mentioned to him at one time, why don't we go into partnerships? And he's the one who instilled on me this philosophy. And I was struggling then. And I was thinking, well, you can help me out and bring me up. Mm -hmm. And he knew that. And he Mm -hmm. said, if you're going to make it, you're going to have to do this on your own. We have to, we are sharing space. We're doing this. But you need to do this on your own. So I can't thank him enough later on because you're either going to make this thing past the critical stages or you're not. And I remember talking to a group of people once about this and uh, brought up this point about partnerships. And this woman who was at the event, I'll never forget, said, oh, my God, thank you, thank you. Because I was, she said, I was just going to go in tomorrow and sign with a partner. I had a bad feeling about it. This kind of makes me feel that it's not the direction to go. Wow. <laughs> Last minute. <laughs> right. So that's the thing. So that's what I wanted to talk about pretty much today about uh, looking at partnerships and to really be wary about them because I think it's so important. Um, there's certain things that I talk about going into business for yourself, and that is the most critical one, I think, not getting off to a bad start. Now, if you grow and you become successful and you expand your business, there's nothing wrong about maybe bringing some partners in later, but you're still the captain of the ship. You are calling the shots. And the other thing, you really look at how many partnerships work. I was talking to a group when I did my uh, book promotion, and a woman came up to me and said, well, my father, I think it was a law firm they owned, they, they did great with partnerships, you know. And I go, oh, well, that's something, you know. Well, uh, then they broke up, and, you know, 30 years later, and it was very difficult breakup for them. I go, well, it didn't work then. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a lead attorney or something, you can bring in partners and people to help you out. But, again, don't give this away at the very beginning. Keep your overhead low, keep your business in check, and really take a very hard look at that. Interesting. So partnerships could also work maybe at the beginning, but if things go bad, maybe they go bad. Absolutely. Too. I mean, it just adds a whole other dynamic to the business. And, okay, you have a partner. Let's say you and another partner, your partner died. Mm-hmm. In the will, it goes to their kids, mm-hmm. goes to their wife. And all of a sudden, somebody's <laughs> walking through the door, Hey, I'm your new partner. I'm your new partner. I'm your new partner. Think about that.
So, would you also does this extend then to to relatives? I've always heard that adage: don't go into business with relatives. Oh, hundred percent agree. I say that uh, friends. I, I extend it to friends. Uh, friends and family are for Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's not for going into business together. That is a bad combo. Sage's vice, as always, Paul. So if anybody wants to call in on that and give their advice, uh, we got a uh, hotline which you can leave a message and we'll get it on the air. If you disagree with that, it's 206-65, excuse me, 425-653-1166. 425-653-1166. Back with Bob Little in just a moment. Bob, you've been with uh, KIXI since 1961. Do you have a moment that you can relate which really represents your time here? Uh, over the years, I think what meant most to me is the wonderful people that I have met over the years at KIXI. Of course, an ever-changing group of people, and uh, they've all been absolutely marvelous. None better than the group I'm working with right now at KIXI, I might add. How did you get into broadcasting? Well, that's uh, probably uh, one of the silliest stories you've ever heard. Uh, I got out of the Army in, in 1946 and met a lovely woman named Betty Hilger, whom I got engaged to. Uh, seemed like about two or three weeks later, we were married in August. And I, I needed a job, or I needed something to look forward to. And people had mentioned that uh, I might have had a little potential doing broadcasting. Of course, radio was uh, not in its infancy then, but it was a much simpler thing than it is right now. And I went to a KHQ, which was the biggest station in, in uh, Spokane at the time, and asked the program director, whom I'd met just briefly uh, before the war, and I said, uh, I'm, oh, I'm, should I go to uh, Washington State? Should I go someplace and take communication and uh, learn how to be on the air? You think I have potential? Well, he turned me over to a wonderful gentleman who was the chief announcer at the time named Lou Gillette. He sat down with me and he said, I'm going to give you an audition. He gave me a, a very complicated audition, unlike what they receive nowadays, by the way with cities and names and states and people and being sure you had the basic knowledge of language and uh, could do a fair job of uh, reading something and, and making it sound like you made it up. <laughs> and uh, afterwards he said, well, you know, I don't think you have to go to college. He said, I think you are ready now and there's going to be an opening here because I'm leaving. That was what Lou said. And I'll do my best to get you hired. Well, that's what happened. Uh, a week or so later, they called me in and said, you are hired. And I worked there till. Uh, almost 1950. So it was an unusual experience in those days to walk in a, in a major market station and be able to get a job having never been in a radio station before. And, hey, I'm still here. What changes have you seen? Oh, howdy, I tell you, there have been a lot of changes over the years. When I first got into radio at KHQ, as I mentioned, in Spokane, they had live bands. They had uh, uh, Western artists who were on the air live. Uh, we had uh, people who did so many things. There would be somebody who wrote the commercials for you, somebody who wrote the news for you, uh, and uh, somebody picked the music if you had a music show. And, of course, you had producers and directors, and it was much fancier than it is today. We also have computers we use here. I had to get used to those things at my age, believe me. What do you see in the future, Bob? If I could uh, have uh, my wish for the future, I'd like to stick around a little bit longer here and a broadcast of the wonderful people that are out there in the listening audience at KIXI. The folks who listen overnight, midnight to six, that kicks you overnight. Uh, the ones who listen to the Sunday brunch with yours truly, Bob Little. 
Uh, I'd like to just keep doing that for a while. Would you advise someone to get into broadcasting today? Well, why not? I mean, if, if somebody has the bent and uh, the knowledge and the education, I would advise that. I would advise them to go out and enhance their life with as much education as they could probably get, as much knowledge of the world and the country and uh, the language, and then jump in with both feet. Give it a shot. What have you got to lose? Oh, how great to hear Bob Bob Little's voice again. Again, give a quick memory of him. Oh, you knew just, him better than me. I just remember him being in uh, management meetings and things. And, you know, back then we kind of all dressed in ties and shirts. That's just what you did in the office. And he was radio guy. He's on air a lot. So he just would show up in his nice shirt, but he'd always have his, his bomber jacket on or, you know, like, a, like what you see at high school, you know, the letterman's jacket. As a matter of fact, just a quick aside, I just read an interesting article that those have completely gone out of favor. Nobody wears them anymore. And when you think about it, you don't see teenagers wearing those anymore. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, for like their sports clubs and things like that. Maybe we should bring Keep them back. <laughs> you got to oh. make them like them first. Yeah, that's true. But no, genuinely nice guy. Uh, I didn't get to work with him, unfortunately, closely. But uh, judging by the tears... And uh, the the well wishes when he left the the, the radio station, uh, he was a loved guy. Mm, that's great. Now I I would run across him a few times to say I did that interview with him, but he was just he was you know the radio man. So uh, Eric, who do you have coming up next week? Mm. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed here. I'm doing an interview with Paul Silvey for another segment I do on a on a different uh, show. And I want to hold him over for 10 minutes and talk to him about how he sort of got into sports broadcasting, what it's been like to meet all these different sports stars, and what is, what is it like just having to fly around and do the, do the hectic schedule that he does. So sure, it's kind of still with King 5, right? King 5. Wow, That's he's right. been there for a long, long yep. time. Yep. King 5, it seems to me that the people who go there stay there all the time. Well, of course, that's true with the other stations here locally, Como and Cairo, so forget that thought. They all kind of stick around for a long time. (laughs) Quote of the week, we seek a free flow of information, a nation that is afraid to let people judge the truth or falsehood in an open market is a nation afraid of its people. President John F. Kennedy, 